We're back and continuing our conversation with former Congressman Pete McCloskey. Let's talk about uh, your friend, John Erkman. I guess you mentioned he was on the debate team with you at Stanford. He was certainly one of Nixon's most important aides. And from what I gather, when that Cambodia story broke, you guys had quite an argument over how the, how the war was conducted. We did have an argument. We had been friends the first three years of the Nixon administration, despite the fact that I was opposed to the war. Earth Day, i got to tell you a funny story about John, and Earth Day. Earth Day was a thing between Gaylord Nelson, a senator, and he'd gone to San Jose State, and at Christmas 69, he's in a high-rise apartment with a friend in San Francisco who'd been in the Kennedy administration, and Gaylord Nelson, while a student at San Jose, had fallen in love with California, the Sierras, the Redwoods, the coast, and he, they had a couple of martinis. <laughs> and finally, after two martinis, Gaylord said, you know, we ought to have an Earth Day. We ought to celebrate the Earth, meaning Northern California and its beauty. Another martini, and they said, yeah, and it ought to be bipartisan. We ought to have both parties involved. It shouldn't be just a Democratic thing. And finally, another fourth martini, and it ought to be bicameral. We <laughs> ought to find a Republican conservationist <laughs> congressman. The other guy said, there aren't any. And he said, no, I hear there's one guy that, from Palo Alto that's an environmentalist that got elected a couple of years ago. So I get a call. Will I be co-chairman of Earth Day? Yeah, I'll say. Well, we brought the Stanford student body president, a guy named Sid Howe of the Conservation Foundation, raised $100,000. And this was in the height of the anti-Vietnam War spirit. It was 1970. And we agreed it ought to be on the old Arbor Day, April 22nd, which was a Sunday. And these kids got together, and they, they sent a letter out to the student body president of 10,000 high schools and 2,000 universities. Dear student body president, would you be interested in having an Earth Day, a day of study of the environment, air pollution, water pollution, whales, on, on April 22nd? Well, an incredible number of kids responded. Said, yeah, we'd like to do it on our campus. Mm -hmm. So every two weeks, they would send out a thing from Washington, a fact sheet about air pollution or water pollution or land use or endangered species. And Earth Day came, and it was a beautiful sunny afternoon on a Sunday. And all my daughter happened to be at San Diego State. Well, about four days later, Ehrlichman calls me. He's laughing as hard as I ever heard him laughing. This was a good guy before he went to the White House. He'd flown 26 missions over Europe as a lead bombardier in what we call the flying coffin of, of B-24. B mm -hmm. Ehrlichman calls me. He's laughing as, as I tell you. He says, Pete, you won't believe this. Nixon is so paranoid that he had every Earth Day event across the United States. He had them, the FBI put them under surveillance. Well, picture FBI agents in field glasses looking at this. And he read me a couple of paragraphs of the report he was going to have to give Nixon, signed by J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> and it said uh, there was no anti-war talk. Everybody was benign. It was a lot of kids sitting out on grassy hillsides, petting their dogs, the girls with flour in their hair, wearing shorts and a T-shirt and nothing else. The guys were and listening to some guy at a microphone talk about Lake Algae or something. And he had to give this to Nixon because <laughs> that Earth Day had not been anti-war. <laughs> this was two weeks before Kent State. Yeah. And the campuses erupted, of course, against the war then. But the kids that ran Earth Day, about two weeks after the event, early May, in the 
The Washington Times, which was an afternoon paper since defunct, not very many people read it. Page six, there's a two-page column. Youth group calls 12 members of Congress the dirty dozen and vows their defeat. And I'm in the cloakroom that afternoon, and this old guy comes. I was not beloved in the Republican Party at that time. This was 1970. And this guy comes in, and he's waving the paper, and he's one of the dirty dozen. He's an old guy from Ohio, and he starts to yell, this is your work, McCloskey, and he's yelling at me. <laughs> and that wakes up about six guys that are sleeping on the couches. The cloakrooms are L-shaped, or and the Democrats have one, and... They have couches in one side and a telephone booth on the bottom and the other, and a little lunch thing. Well, he wakes up all the sleeping guys, and they finally, <laughs> oh, let Pete alone. It's just a bunch of kids. Ho, 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 ha, ha, ha. And everybody forgot about him. But I think it was maybe six or eight weeks later that the two Democrats came up in primaries. And they were both beaten by less than 1,000 votes because the Earth Day kids descended on Baltimore and Denver by the hundreds and thousands to turn out the vote. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't selected the 12 worst guys on the environment. They'd selected 12 they thought they could beat. Well, they beat the two Democrats. One was the chairman of the pork committee, the guy that they doled out, you know, if you had a project in your district, you got one from this guy. Mm -hmm. The other guy was a senior guy from Denver. Well, they licked five of the 10 Republicans in November, so the result of Earth Day was that when Congress convened in January 1971, two-thirds of the Congress are now environmentalists. I mean, nobody had licked seven incumbents. And those years, those four years, 71 through 74, Republican president, Democratic Congress, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Oceans, Mammal Protection, the Endangered Species Act, all of their landmark environmentalism was bipartisan with the Republican president. And Nixon was no environmentalist, but Ehrlichman was. And Ehrlichman got Nixon to create the Environmental Protection Agency. So starting wow. in 1970, those kids of Earth Day changed the world. They got a new, a new kind of Congress. And until Gingrich, for 24 years, we had bipartisan cooperation on the environment. After Gingrich, it's been the pendulum has swung the other way. And now to preserve the Endangered Species Act, uh, McNerney is going to have a tough fight down in Stockton. Uh, uh, Republicans are saying, let's abolish the Endangered Species Act. It's an interesting year today, but what those kids did in 1970 with Earth Day, the magnitude of what they did to defeat seven incumbents yeah. caused the environmental movement to take off. Before 1970, you know, we'd had the Depression, then we'd had the war. And then it had 25 years since 1945 of development. Nobody cared about the environment. Environmentalists were little old ladies in tennis shoes. We were talking politics and I guess a bit of philosophy with former Congressman Pete McCloskey. I want to ask one Watergate question. I know that your friendship with Ehrlichman did survive politics. And I did, when I was 20 years old, find myself at the Watergate hearings. I took a quarter out of college. I went back east and I just missed... Uh, some of the most interesting testimony involving Ehrlichman and Haldeman and, and Richard Helms. And I'm just wondering if you ever had a conversation about that, what's called the smoking gun incident, where Nixon sends Haldeman and Ehrlichman to go ask Helms, the CIA, to call off that investigation in the wake of Howard Hunt's name coming up. I'm wondering if you ever, if you ever talked to him about that. Yeah, quite a bit. I, I have to tell you that John and I had been moot court debate directors at Sanford. But more than that, 
the third year of law school, I was sent to Korea in the Marines with a pregnant wife, and John and Jean Ehrlichman looked after my wife, saw her through that pregnancy and the birth of the daughter that I never saw for until I got back. So we were awfully good friends. And then when we practiced law, I was in Palo Alto, he was in Seattle, we would exchange cases. If I had something in Seattle, I would send it to him. And he was an environmental municipal type lawyer. So we stayed friends. And we stayed friends until I made the first speech to impeach Nixon for <laughs> obstruction of justice. Because when he came out and he announced, he'd fired Ehrlichman and Haldeman, he said, I've ordered the FBI to stop investigating the CIA, which had discovered the money trail from his lawyer, Curb Kambach, to Mexico City, to, to Bibi Rebozo, to the wireman, and the wireman would deliver it at the second overlook on the Potomac Parkway to Mrs. Hunt to keep Hunt quiet. Hunt was threatening to sing. Sarika was saying, you know, I may throw away the key on you unless you tell the truth. And so they were delivering, I think, ten or 20000 each week to Hunt to keep him quiet. And it was a, a trail. In any event, when Ehrlichman, our friendship ended when I made that speech about impeaching Nixon. And I'd done it uh, in 71, I guess. And so our friendship languished until he went to jail. And then I go to see him at Safford, Arizona on Thanksgiving Day, I think 76 maybe. And I flew down to Tucson and I got two big turkey sandwiches crammed with cranberry sauce, you know, the deli kind. And I drive over to Safford Prison and there's no fence around the Safford Prison. There's a bunch of Indian tribes in the desert and you don't go anywhere. And it was Thanksgiving Day, so they let John off, and we sat in these rickety stands. He'd gone from having a limousine and this worship of the world to living with 69 Mexicans in a barracks. There were 70 people, 35 cots to his side, and Ehrlichman didn't speak Spanish, and none of the guys, these guys were all in for five months and 29 days for having crossed the border 63 times or something. Well, we're sitting out there, and I said, John... Whatever happened to you? You know, you were a wonderful lawyer, an honorable lawyer. And what happened? You lied to the grand jury. You lied to congressional committees. I didn't ask him about going down to Santa Monica to offer the head of the FBI to the judge if he would suppress evidence in the Ellsworth trials. That was the worst of the things he'd been doing. Well, he, he looked across the desert for about 30 seconds or more, and he finally said, Pete... And I've remembered these words, I've always remembered. Pete, it took us three and a half years to be corrupted by the power of the White House. But we came to believe that the re-election of Richard Nixon was essential to the national security not against McGovern, who was a decorated pilot in the war. Those words stayed with me because to justify everything with the national security, burglary, wiretapping, uh, the invasion of uh, Ellsberg's doctor to discredit Ellsberg. The same thing exactly happened when Joe Wilson pulled the string on President Bush and said he'd lied about the yellow cake in Nigeria. So what's the response? Cheney outs Valerie Plame for 21 years of the CIA and says she's fair game to discredit her husband and say that she sent him to Nigeria on a junket, you know, and the CIA wouldn't stand behind the power that Dick Cheney exercised, this book I've just written that I've given you, I've said if we could go back to international law, there would be a small price to pay 
to send Cheney and Rumsfeld up for trial as war criminals because they and their lawyers accepted torture in violation of the Geneva Accords and violation of international law. And the greatest thing Putin ever said, I, I'm no fan of Putin, but I think last year the, our government banned 18 Russians from Washington because we thought they were spies or something. Putin responded... And he said, I've banned from coming to Russia because they're war criminals. John Yu, who was Umsell's lawyer, David Addington, who was Cheney's lawyer, and Jeffrey Miller, the, the general who supervised the torture at uh, Guantanamo and then was sent to Iraq. And he said, they're war criminals. And I think they were war criminals. There's a book called The Trial of Henry Kissinger for Making War on the People mm -hmm. of Vietnam. So this wasn't a war. This was a war against the people of Vietnam because they were harboring people who wanted to support the Viet Cong. Well, we executed General Jodl after Nuremberg because he had done the same thing. He had moved against villages and deported their people because they supported people that were, he's, in his mind, terrorists. We executed him. Right. We executed General Yamashita after World War II because his troops had committed uh, crimes against Filipinos. Well, if we want international law, we in the United States have to abide by international law. And so the Bush administration to me was a tragedy. It's, what, it's why I became a Democrat. I couldn't stomach their sense of values about torture and about making war. We have to close it off here, but we do want to note that Congressman McCloskey was amazingly generous with his time, and we have another two hours of material recorded, which we will be airing in the weeks to come. We know you're going to want to tune in just to hear what uh, Pete McCloskey and a few others did to Pat Robertson's presidential aspirations back in the 1980s. It's quite a story. Our thanks to the Congressman, whom we look forward to bringing on again. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And I have to say, we certainly feel privileged to be able to bring you a guest such as Pete McCloskey. And I guess I want to add a thank you for listening. And in closing, I want to note that we certainly enjoy your feedback, so don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. 